0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today we talk about tax as a way to fund public education systems worldwide. My guest is David Archer, head of participation in public services at ActionAid. David leads ActionAid's work on civic participation, tax justice, and gender responsive public services. He has written about domestic taxation and education for the Education Commission and is editing a special issue for
1: NORAG on the topic. Yeah, but if you look at aid to education, it's a much smaller percentage of the contribution to financing compared to, say, in low-income countries, compared to the amount of money that comes in aid to health or to agriculture. Education is absolutely, uh, I think it's something like 87% of education financing comes from domestic resources, and that's principally because the biggest cost is teachers and governments are very reluctant to employ new teachers based on short-term unpredictable aid.
0: David is a co-founder and, until recently, a board member of the Global Campaign for Education. He is the Chair of the Board of the Right to Education Initiative, and also chairs the Global Partnership for Education's Strategy and Impact Committee, and is a trustee of the UK Forum on International Education and Training. In our conversation, David roundly critiques many development agencies for their contradictory stance towards financing education and other social services through domestic taxation
1: there's a global business coalition for education which has got a lot of very very powerful big international companies and they are all you know saying they really want to champion progress on education and help to achieve sdg4 that's great my challenge to them is Just first of all, prove to me that you're paying fair taxes in the countries where you're operating, because that's the biggest single contribution you can make to progress on education. And be transparent, country by country reporting, because if you do that, that is what's going to enable countries to make progress on education. So you should be in the forefront of being champions of that, and I don't see that coming through. David Archer, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, good to be here. So I want to
0: talk today about tax and education finance. And to start, I'd like to think about how poor and middle-income countries even finance their education
1: systems. Well, I mean, the answer is that the vast majority of financing for public education systems in most countries comes from the domestic tax base of the country. And although I think uh, the Education Commission 2016 talked about how 97% of funding for education needed come from domestic resource mobilization, and only 3% would come through uh, increased mobilization of aid and loans, for example. In practice, the world tends to spend over 90% of uh, its attention on aid and ignores the crucial importance of what we can do to increase domestic resource mobilization. So there's a a complete inversion of attention here.
0: Right. So so this Education Commission, Mm -hmm. they are saying that it should be 97% funded by domestic taxes
1: and 3% from aid. But what is the actual figure? doing? we Well, know? I mean, so, the in of course, it's very difficult to get a simple global figure, but if you look at aid uh, to education, it's a much smaller percentage of the contribution to financing compared to, say, uh, the, in low-income countries, compared to the amount of money that comes in aid uh, to health or to agriculture. Education is absolutely, uh, I think it's something like 87%, of education financing comes from domestic resources. And that's principally because the biggest cost is teachers and governments are very reluctant to employ new teachers based on short term unpredictable aid. So when we think
0: about sort of general benchmarks for education finance globally, what are some of the norms that we talk about or should be thinking about?
1: in education? Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the one which people perhaps refer to most of all is uh, that governments ought to be spending 20% of their national budgets on education. Uh, that's, you know, something which was raised initially by the Education for All Fast Track initiative. Uh, it was referenced in the John Tien Education for All conference, but reinforced in Dakar uh, in 2000 and is referenced again in the Incheon Framework for Action in 2015. Uh, this is a, a an inchy on it talks about a range of 15 to 20 percent of national budgets should be spent on education. The worry that I have is that 15 to 20 percent of a very small pie is a very small amount. Um, generally speaking, people have paid very little attention in the education community to the size of the pie overall, and if we're serious about addressing the resource gaps in financing of education we need to pay more attention to the size of the pie and that is determined more than anything else by the size of the domestic tax base of the country. So we need to be looking not just at the share of the budget but the size of the government, the share of the budget going to education, but the size of the government budget as a whole. And of course there are other critical things to think about. We need to think about the sensitivity, the allocation of the education budget, ideally driven by uh, equity concerns. We need to look at the scrutiny of that budget to make sure that money arrives in practice in the most excluded communities. And that's why we talk about these four S's as being absolutely crucial indicators for education financing. You look at the share of the budget, 20%, go into education, the size of the government budget overall, the sensitivity of the allocation driven by equity, and the scrutiny to make sure the money arrives in practice. You need to look at the interdependency of all of those four if you're going to get serious about addressing financing.
0: And earlier you mentioned something about the resource gap in education. How big is this? What are we talking about here?
1: Well, I mean, it, this again, so uh, in many cases, the Education Commission will talk about hundreds of billions of uh, dollars, or even trillions uh, in the longer term. But the global attention tends to focus on the $39 billion, which is estimated to be the external resource gap, even after domestic financing has been factored in. But actually, that $39 billion takes for granted that there will be massive accelerating growth in domestic financing for education and almost nobody is paying attention to what is being done to expand the domestic financing for education and in fact we're finding that there are more and more constraints and uh, and contradictions and governments are finding it more and more difficult to in fact expand domestic financing for education as a result of rising new debt crises as a result of IMF conditions that hold down public sector wage bills, and as a result of lack of ambition in supporting countries to expand their tax bases.
0: So this is quite a contradiction then, right? We have this, the need for more financing, the need for more domestic financing to education, but domestic governments are being constrained in all sorts of ways By some of the very actors who are trying to promote development.
1: I mean, that seems very contradictory. Yes, I mean, and I do think perhaps one of the biggest contradictions is that, uh, you know, the education community engages with the Ministry of Education about beautiful, you know, uh, developing education sector plans and trying to support the progress on education towards SDG4, but the really big decisions about financing are based on uh, uh, ministries of finance and the education community has almost no meaningful relationship with the Ministry of Finance. In fact the Ministry of Education is often unable to go and make coherent demands of the Ministry of Finance. The Ministry of Finance and what it does in terms of investing in education is determined more than anything else by its dialogue with the IMF and with the World Bank and neither of those institutions when it comes to looking at the big financing picture is really thinking about education? They are thinking macroeconomic st- stability, in uh, often a very sort of narrow and ideologically framed way. Yeah, and, and how would you define that ideology? Well, I think we would is still the Washington consensus, uh, sort of a, a sort of neoliberal fundamentalism. We have Action recently conducted this sort of analysis of IMF policy conditions and advice across all low-income countries, cross-section of low-middle-income countries. And we find that although the IMF is now putting up beautiful policy and research papers about all sorts of economic alternatives, when you look at what they're doing in developing countries and the conditions and the advice that they're giving, It's pretty much unchanged from the days of the structural adjustment programs of the 1980s, which have long since been discredited. And that means holding down spending on public services at a critical moment when governments are expected to expand spending in order to achieve the sustainable development goals, not just in education and health and water in other sectors. You have the IMF coming in and still saying, no, hang on. You've got to hold down your public sector wage bill which is the biggest constraint of all, because the biggest item in education budgets is teacher salaries. And we found in our latest research that in 80% of countries, the IMF was advising that public sector wage bills needed to be either frozen or reduced in 80% of countries. If you're going to freeze or reduce your public sector wage bill, and teachers are the single largest item on that wage bill, and doctors and nurses are the second largest group, then you're simply not going to be able to employ the more teachers, doctors, nurses, the public sector workers, you need to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. So we are seeing this gross contradiction between the aspirations of the international community to achieve Sustainable Development Goals and the policies that are still being pursued in practice by the IMF—it's a bit schizophrenic, isn't it? Oh, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, and I think we see the World Bank coming in in many cases as well, sort of saying, "Come, oh, well, you, if you can't expand your public spending, then we have to find other solutions," and you end up with uh, support for PPPs or privatisation, or an assumption that the private sector is going to come in with resources which is very rarely the case. In fact, it's often more about the dismantling of a public education system and public accountability, and the private sector is very rarely bringing in new resources. But it, this drive to privatization of education is closely correlated to the failure, the chronic underfunding of public education for a long time, and the continued pressure on domestic budgets to be held down. So if we
0: were to take this issue of tax seriously, and sort of overcome this ideology of the Washington Consensus, how should we be thinking about taxes? How should, how should low and middle income countries really start taking taxes seriously?
1: What should they be focused on? So one of the sort of most useful indicators is the tax to GDP ratio of a country. You know, you have everyone from UNCTAD to uh, Thomas Piketty and Capital in the 21st century saying, at a bare minimum, countries need a 20% tax-to-GDP ratio. Otherwise, uh, Piketty calls them a sort of regalian states, sort or of states which play some sort of formal function as a state but actually can't deliver universal services. If you want to deliver, have a state that delivers universal services, you have to have a minimum 20% tax-to-GDP ratio. At the moment, an average tax-to-GDP ratio in low-income countries is 16%. In middle-income countries, it's closer to 25 or 30%. In higher-income countries, is about 40%. And in the countries which have got really comprehensive universal provision of services in the Scandinavian countries, it's 45%. So it's the biggest determinant of whether or not a country is able to provide services is the tax-to-GDP ratio. Let's say The average low-income country, 16%. But there are then serious outliers, like Nigeria and Pakistan, where the tax-to-GDP ratio is under 10%. Wow. And these are countries, interestingly, Nigeria and Pakistan are the two countries that have got the most children out of school in the world between the two of them and it's surely connected to the fact that not only are they not spending enough on on education as a share of the budget they also have a very low tax base which means you know in those two countries if you got the tax to GDP ratio up to 20%, as a minimum level, and you increase the share of spending to education, you could actually triple or quadruple public spending on education and that would be transformative obviously.
0: And so you could increase the size of the budget and still give 20%
1: to education recurrent expenditures, and you would see a massive growth. You would have a massive growth, even in countries that... One of the interesting things in looking at the the Global Partnership for Education, with the the Global Fund, which makes it a a requirement to receive funds from uh, GPE, that countries should work towards 20% of the national budget being spent on education. You've got a lot of countries who are spending 20% of the budget, but they've still got major education challenges. And the main reason for that is that they've it's 20% of a very small budget. They've got a very small tax to GDP ratio. So the real interest of the education community is to stand alongside now the health community and other sectors to make the case for expanding the tax to GDP ratio because that's what would be most transformative for expanding spending. Right, rather than fighting with different sectors saying let's improve all the sectors by getting a larger It is a budget. real problem. I think we've seen a long time now that the education community, when it's only fighting for an increased share of the budget, you start upsetting the health people and the water people and the agriculture people and the transport people and the energy. You end up in this combative uh, situation with other sectors when actually, there's, you know, as soon as you focus on tax and how you expand the tax-to-GDP ratio, there's a massive common interest and you're working together with those other sectors to say, what does it take to build a viable public sector as a whole and in most cases, education is the biggest single beneficiary of that, because in many countries 20% of the national budget is spent on education, which is tend to be a higher proportion than is spent on other sectors. So if you keep the same share, but expand the size of the budget, overall, Every, everyone, everyone wins and education wins in particular. Right, so then how do countries, that if they were to do this, if
0: they were to think about the share and the size of these budgets, yeah. how do they stay sensitive? What sort of ways Is sensitivity then through government taxation policies? How can governments actually be sensitive to the equity issues that you were talking about earlier, to make sure we don't have regressive taxes for instance, or that, you know,
1: the education budget is actually distributed correctly? Yes, so I think it's interesting to pick up on that point of sensitivity because it's important to consider both the sensitivity allocation of the budget driven by equity, but also the sensitivity through which revenue is collected. How do you expand your tax base in a sensitive, progressive way, which means that the poor pay less as a share of their uh, income than the rich. Now, the, the focus of a progressive tax reform should be the rich or those who got more should pay more. And in practice, what we're seeing is that the dominant form of expanding the tax base in low-income countries at the moment is through VAT. The value-added Value tax. Value-added tax. Now, this is problematic for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, in many cases uh, value-added tax is sort of supported and particularly advocated by the IMF as a way to expand tax it's it's a relatively easy way to expand uh, your tax base partly because it's largely invisible Be- people who are not aware of paying it it's the shopkeepers the people who are selling things that are having to uh, to effectively pay it and who are aware of it but the consumers tend not to be. You just see the final. You b- see the, fi- the final total. But the the problem with it is it ends up being regressive. In fact, it probably uh, is particularly bad for women who may be buying everyday items, and uh, so it's it's both gender regressive and regressive as a whole. The poor end up paying a unfair share. And there's the other problem with VAT is because it's invisible, people aren't aware of being taxpayers. So if you go to a remote village in any country in Africa or Asia and You talk about tax, people don't think it's relevant to them because they're not aware of being taxpayers. And if they're not aware of being taxpayers, they see the public services that they receive, whether it's education or health, the local school, as some sort of charitable, benevolent gift given by a local politician, rather than as their right, rather than as something that they're paid for through their taxes. And it's incredibly transformative when we then build awareness, even in, in very remote villages, that you are a taxpayer. You are paying tax every time you're buying something. You are paying tax. And if you add up the amount that is being paid in some rural villages, as we did in Pakistan, we had a head teacher who did calculated the total revenue that was being paid in his village by everybody through VAT and it came up to something like $250,000 a year, and then he compared that with the amount of spending on education and health and said, we're just not getting a fair share of services for this. So whilst people's ability to demand the right to public services should not be determined by whether they pay tax, it certainly enhances people's confidence to mobilize and demand services if they are aware that they are taxpayers. Because why would you pay twice? Why would you have to pay user fees to access a service if you've already paid for it through your tax? there is a problem with VAT because it's invisible and it, it doesn't help to build the accountability mm-hmm. and people's confidence. And yet that is the main recommendation in many cases by the IMF. What we are calling for is a much bigger focus on the biggest, richest international companies, multinational companies, wealthiest elite of countries, looking at property and land taxes and wealth taxes and capital gains taxes, inheritance taxes. There's a whole range of taxes that need to be to put in place in order to build a, a fair tax system, a, what would normally be called a progressive tax system, as a foundation then for progressive spending on things like education and health. Yeah, but don't
0: you, I mean, it's progressive taxation, I, I, it seems to be one of the biggest challenges that it faces is that it requires a larger contribution from people who are in power, mm. people who are making the rules on taxation, and who use ideas like new public management to justify the idea of a value added tax who justify cutting taxes to corporations and the wealthy so they can be job creators as the discourse in America is so it seems like it's a political question then not simply a question of you know what's the correct calculation for taxes but it's a deep serious political question in each country. It
1: is a serious political question and this is why we need to build a a much wider awareness about tax and and why it's, you know, we need to demystify it and make it something where where education advocates, health advocates, other public sector advocates, much wider sway the society makes the case for Mm -hmm. tax reform. uh, Because otherwise you're not going to be able to challenge the elites who are always going to be trying to pass on the costs of things to (laughs) uh, the most vulnerable and, and, and in many cases the poorest. The, the, some of the stunk, the most shocking stuff is around the extent to which um, taxes, uh, tax breaks are given away, tax holidays, and tax incentives to big multinational companies. So the impression is given that, oh, well, if we don't give these tax holidays and tax incentives to big companies, they won't invest here. All of the research shows that when a multinational company makes a decision to invest in a particular country, you know they may have, say, 15 different criteria for where they're going to invest. Getting a tax holiday might be number 13 or 14 on that list. It's very low down their priorities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they will always ask for it. And they always give the impression that they're not going to invest if they don't get it. And they always win that argument because it's an unbalanced negotiation. But the truth is they're going to invest in the country anyway. Harmful tax incentives, even what the IMF would define as harmful tax incentives, tax incentives that no country should, should give away, amount to a loss to developing countries of about 138 billion dollars every year. That's infinitely larger than the aid revenue that is ever given. <laughs> wow. uh, 138 billion dollars lost every year and in some countries it's astonishing the figures involved. So in Pakistan, $4 billion is given away every year in what the IMF would deem harmful tax incentives to attract multinationals, to invest in the country. Money that should not be given away, that the IMF say you really should keep that in the country. And that $4 billion, if even just 20% of that was spent on education, fair share to go to education, that's enough to get every single child who's out of school in Pakistan into school and to employ 100,000 more teachers. It's transformative the level of, of money that is just willfully given away. And I think there's a very close connection with corruption as well, because sometimes these tax incentives are given away to multinational companies in exchange for a little bit of a backhander to some powerful politician or somebody who's going to do a deal behind the scenes to enable them to get these tax breaks. So it's associated also with some pretty nefarious activity. And this
0: is where the issue of scrutiny would come in. You, you would not only scrutinize the national budgets of and the, spending. That, and the spending but also how the tax breaks yeah and the non, almost the non-tax issues or whatever it is and how those are being or not being scrutinized at the multinational level. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, you you just need scrutiny. There should be no giving away of a a tax incentive to any multinational company without, at the very least, parliamentary scrutiny. But in most cases, this is something which can be done without any sort of parliamentary oversight, and that's really shocking. So you you certainly need a level of of scrutiny. It is, the IMF estimate that low-income countries can increase their tax-to-GDP ratio by 5% in the medium term, say, within three to five years. We would argue that means if you're sitting from here in 2000, by 2030, the date of the SDGs, that's 10 years from now, most countries could expand their tax to GDP ratio by 10%. In the case, of Nigeria, Pakistan, countries with very low tax to GDP ratio, that is a doubling of your tax base. And that's transformative in terms of your capacity to spend on development. But in every country, an increase of the tax to GDP ratio you know, for a low income country's average of 16% to get up to 26% starts to build the basis for providing universal services as a whole and education in particular. So and our argument would be that that growth in tax-to-GDP ratio can be done through progressive tax, through taxes which are redistributive in themselves, so that you're not just uh, being sort of gender responsive and progressive in how you spend your money, but also in how you collect the money, and that does mean some difficult challenges in holding wealthy elites, wealthy companies to account. and. You know, that's where citizen mobilisation increased awareness about tax and where we need the education community to get together with the health and the other public sectors to make the case for tax reform. At the moment, people don't do that because people see tax as some sort of a complex, technical, mystifying sort of thing rather than as something which is the absolute bad bedrock of any discussion of development. Mm. Why, why, you know, it should be the first thing that every single organisation that is serious about development should be talking about okay well how do you build a state which is a developmental state one which can provide services we've got to talk about tax how are we going to do that it should be the central concern of any aid agency there should be no absolute focus on how do you expand uh you know how can you strengthen national revenue authorities and yet there was a beautiful piece of research done by the global education monitoring report a few years back now which showed that for one dollar spent in strengthening national revenue authorities in africa the increased revenue was about $350, sustainably, in terms of wow. increased revenue for tournament. So you would think, well, every single aid donor must surely be pouring their money into strengthening revenue authorities. Even from a sort of a conservative angle, this is the sustainability of aid. You, you, know, you, you no longer have to give aid if you manage to build credible taxes. Now, how much money actually goes how much? to support, um, from the aid budgets globally, to support revenue authorities in low-income countries? 0.1% of aid. Oh my gosh. So you would say, well, <laughs> surely this is the key to building a sustainable development and only 0.1% of present aid budgets is being spent on doing that. It so happens. why not? Why not? I mean, what's the what's the logic here that these <laughs> these development agencies
0: are operating within? Is it still, you know, I mean, on the one hand, I start thinking, is it simply where, you know, these agencies are stuck in the Cold War and the idea of redistribution is linked to socialism?
1: And Maybe that becomes it. like a scary Either word? Either that or they're stuck in the colonial era and they still quite like dependency. Yeah. I mean, the, the truth is, and I do find it more and more alarming, that, you know, in some ways Some of the powerful sort of northern donor countries now have more influence over what's happening in education and health and in social services than possibly they did in a colonial era where it's astonishing. And so there is a power thing. There's a power thing. You want to perpetuate some level of dependence. You don't really want countries to be able to determine for themselves what their policies are. You want to export your services from your country to these low income countries. You want to tie your aid. You want to use aid as a. An entry point to advance trade and security interests, you don't necessarily genuinely want to support sustainable development. Self-sufficiency. If you you really were serious about it, you would put all of your energy into how can you strengthen the tax
0: system. So it's having a self-sufficient sovereign nation is actually a threat geopolitically to
1: certain nations. Yeah, that might be a factor. Uh, I I mean, I don't, I sometimes grapple with why. Why would it just not make sense? We do see some donors improving their practice in the Norad in Norway, much, much better practice in terms of taking seriously tax reform as part of the sort of package of their aid support. That's, you know, there are some positive examples out there. We are making a very <laughs> big push with the Global Partnership for Education to take this tax work seriously in the coming months so that it should build part of the, the new strategy. For me, that's absolutely crucial because that Global Partnership for Education has got all the bilaterals around the table and the multilaterals, and it's a space where if we can shift the understanding of what can be most transformative for education financing to include tax, then I think well, that would be a big breakthrough. There's another
0: element of tax that I've been thinking about lately, and I, to be honest, I don't really know how to understand it, and that is about these big multinational corporations like UBS, for instance, Mm-hmm. or massive philanthropic organizations like the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation in America and their involvement in education aid but somehow using the sort of the nonprofit tax loopholes to benefit themselves and I don't understand how that works yet but I've mm-hmm. seen I've seen like UBS for instance they have this whole impact investment fund or whatever they call it and I don't understand the logic of why they would, you know, the donors they have, which are presumably multi-billionaires from these different companies, would want to invest in education at all. I just don't understand the
1: logic behind it. And I think, is it something to do with the tax break? Well, that also, first, yeah, it's very, very worrying that any organization, individual, foundation, trust, company that cares about education if they are not paying fair taxes in the countries where they're making a profit, if they're not paying fair taxes generally, I think that's undermining um, progress on education. So there's a global business coalition for education, which has got a lot of very, very powerful, big international companies. And they are all you know, saying they really want to champion progress on education and help to achieve SDG4. That's great. My challenge to them is just, first of all, you know, it's lovely to have your support for education. First of all, Prove to me that you're paying fair taxes in the countries where you're operating because that's the biggest single contribution you can make to progress on education. Just pay taxes and be transparent, country by country reporting, because if you do that, that is what's going to enable countries to make progress on education. So you should be in the forefront of being champions of that, and I don't see that coming through. Similarly, problem with many uh, foundations. The trouble is that there is an industrial scale tax avoidance going on. We recently in ActionAid, or a few years back now, actually did an analysis. We, we sort of got to join a, a training workshops run by people like Barclays Bank, Standard Charters mm-hmm. Bank, about how do you invest in Africa? And put, oh my simply, God. put simply, they were training, you know, anybody who wants to invest in Africa. Well, what you do is you set up a paper company in Mauritius, because they've got very low tax rate in Mauritius. And then you send a loan to your branch, say in Mozambique, uh, to invest in what you want to do in Mozambique. But you charge... A very high interest rate on that loan, say 100 or 150% interest on that loan. So any profits that you make in Mozambique have to pay back the loan first, so you extract your profits from Mozambique into Mauritius, you pay very low tax on that in Mauritius and that way you can invest in Africa and not pay tax. This is an industrial scale operation. And so this was at a conference, people this, were advocating This was a training it. workshop for how to actually invest in Africa. Oh my god. And this god. is the sort of thing that's happening, you know. Um, another one of my other favorite stories is the biggest, is the story we had in Ghana, a brewery in Ghana, a large brewery in Ghana, and we had a woman who was selling the beer that was made in the brewery in a, under a sort of straw roof shack outside the brewery to the people who worked there. And we figured out that she paid more tax on the beer that she was selling to the workers than the entire company, than the entire brewery mm-hmm. did, and it's the largest brewery in Accra. And <laughs> then we figured out she paid more tax than the entire company did in Ghana, and it's the biggest brewery in Ghana. And then we figured out that she paid more tax than the entire company did in the whole of Africa, and it's the biggest brewery in the whole of Africa. Sab Miller, pa- make p- things like grosh. So one woman paying more tax. And that sense of injustice. We need to tell these stories in order to get people to say, this is plain wrong. The people who are making the biggest profits, who have got the ability to pay, to contribute to national development, need to be held to account and need to do so. Because otherwise, how are we going to progress sustainable financing for education?
0: Well, David Archer, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Thank
1: you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here.
0: David Archer is Head of Participation and Public Services at ActionAid. He tweets at DavidArcherAA. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fati Akhtas, and Injung Cho. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Freshhead by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. All US based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.